till noon. And a lot of times we have as our theme for district conference some kind of a ministry emphasis like discipleship. And uh, this year we decided that our theme would just be Jesus, only Jesus. And so I handpicked some of the most seasoned pastors and preachers we have in our district to share the various offices and titles and ministries that Jesus has. So Thursday night, it will be Pastor Dan kicking us off, Jesus as prophet. And then Friday morning, Jesus as priest with Pastor Doug Busby from our church in Pullman. And then uh, Friday afternoon, Jesus as king. So you probably heard those titles, prophet, priest, king. Jesus fulfills all of those Old Testament offices that we're so familiar with from the Old Testament stories. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to talk about Jesus as Son of God and Jesus as Lamb of God. And there is a dichotomy for you there. So Ron Maurer from our Stockett Church in Montana by Great Falls will preach Friday night, Jesus as Son of God. And then in the morning, uh, we'll talk about Jesus, Lamb of God. So I invite you to come, even if you're not signed up for the conference, you're not a delegate. Even if you just came for Friday evening or Saturday, it would be totally worth it for you. And it's a short drive to Spokane. I know you guys do that all the time to go to Costco (laughs) or Sacred Heart, Holy Family, or Deaconess Hospital. So you have a better reason to come down south, and that's to our Liberty Lake Church. Uh, Let's get to the message this morning, and it's going to come from the book of Acts. And before we read our scripture, um, I'll just introduce it this way. Um, Acts is really kind of a second installment of a good history of the life of Jesus and then the ministry of the apostles in the church after his ascension into heaven. And most of you guys know as Bible scholars that Luke is the author both of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he introduces it in the first chapter by saying, well, I told you in my last treatise all the things that Jesus began to do in his ministry. But then he picks up the storyline with Jesus gathering the disciples together on the mountain, giving them their final instructions. And then to their amazement, he rose before their eyes up into the clouds, into the heaven, as the disciples stood there, gasping, probably. In that opening chapter of Acts, we have the disciples asking Jesus, what's the deal? We thought you were the Messiah, and then we saw you crucified, and then gave up all hope. But then you were raised from the dead, and our joy now is made full, and we are surprised to realize the program is not over. It continues. The show goes on. There's more chapters to this story. And it actually says in the opening verses of Acts that for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus talked to the disciples about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And I want to draw your attention um, as we get into our topic today to Acts chapter 1 and um, verse 8 especially. Because they had asked him, Well, Lord, surely now is the time for you to inaugurate your kingdom. They had been waiting a long time to see the big show begin and all the Old Testament prophecies come true in Jesus. But look what he says to them in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. And you'll kind of recognize this as really another rendition of the Great Commission. But Jesus said to them, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the remotest part of the earth. And there's really two things in this verse which... Do you guys realize this is the theme verse of the book of Acts? It truly is. Uh, It's not only Jesus' commission to them, but it really lays out the program in a literary sense of how the book of Acts is going to flow. But there's two things in there. First, the command of Jesus to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And 
we have that geographical series of concentric circles. They're going to start being his witnesses right where they are, right at home in Jerusalem. But then out from there to the whole region, they'll represent him in all Judea. And even further out to places where people don't like to go, like Samaria is representative of that for the Jews. It was kind of their cultural and spiritual no man's land. The place you drive around. Is there a place like that here near Chuila? What's the place you avoid? We'll let that go without saying. But beyond that, uh, they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But the other part of what Jesus said here in Acts 1.8 is about how they would be enabled to do that. And so he says, you shall receive power. He commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the Holy Spirit, which, of course, came upon them all on the day of Pentecost as they were gathered in the upper room. And we see that in the next chapter. But the point is, they would be able to be his witnesses in so many different ways and in all these places because the Lord himself would empower his servants to be his spokesman and to speak not only with their words but with their life and to speak through them by his power. So the book of Acts is that story, that whole theme of Acts 1.8 unfolding for us. And as you read the book of Acts, you see two things. Number one, you see them going to all these places and being witnesses for the Lord, starting in Jerusalem. But the sub-theme, which is perhaps the main theme, is this. They didn't go as ambassadors in their own strength. They went in the power of the Lord. So what you see in the narrative of the book of Acts is God demonstrating himself as God, showing up large and in charge in all kinds of situations. When they were being harassed by the Jewish authorities, the Lord showed up. When they were being persecuted and even martyred, the Lord showed up. When they were in jail, the Lord showed up. When it was the right time and the right place for someone to be healed of their diseases, as with Jesus, so with Jesus' people, the Lord showed up. And the reason the church has marched onward, people, for 2,000 years is because of this twin theme of the book of Acts. Number one, we have been commanded to get up and to go for Jesus and with the message of Jesus. Not to be content that we ourselves have Jesus, but we have been commanded by the Lord to go out and share the good news so that other people can have that same blessing that we ourselves know. So his truth is marching on and always has been because of his command, because of the Great Commission. But the second thing that has been true all through human history uh, is that God is real and God is alive. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, the story of human history is the story of man with or without God. But this is my Father's world. And in the life of the church... We see their amazing progress, not just because they were obedient, but because as they went out, the Lord went with them. Now, what's so exciting for me, and uh, by the way, the book of Acts has always been my favorite book of the Bible. Since my first year of Bible school, when I read it for the very first time, I thought, this is amazing. What is this storyline? But that storyline is also our storyline. The Lord is not done yet. He has not revealed himself in glory and power and might from the heavens, descending with a shout. This is still an amazing opportunity for the gospel to be preached to every creature. And you and I are part of that ongoing storyline of gospel growth that began in Acts. And um, so I, I want to have for our focal point this morning just a good overview that is given for us in chapter 11 about a church that was in Antioch, Antioch of Syria, which is to the north of Israel. And um, in this little passage that we're going to read, you're going to see 
quite a number of elements there which we'll observe in detail about the beginnings of that church, about the life of that church, and the growth of that church. And then the fruitfulness in ministry that that church had in loving God, loving people, and extending the gospel. It's just um, it's a classic case study of what gospel growth is all about. Where it comes from, how it works itself out in the congregation, and then how it matures and goes beyond the local church. So let's read the passage. If you have a Bible, I welcome you to follow me along as we read in Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. And um, I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. And so here's God's word. Acts eleven nineteen and following. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Verse 23. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And as we settle in on this portion of all that is your revelation to us, Lord, may you teach us the things that we personally need, the things that we need for our church, and the ministry here, and things that we need to be doing in terms of mission beyond the church. So as we sang this morning, Lord, open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to pick out of this narrative, first of all, five details that I think are worth noting, remarkable details about the church in Antioch. And as I do that, I just want to remind you that Acts is a story. It's, it's narrative. So it's not like um, Ephesians or Colossians or Romans, which are teaching books with doctrine and exhortation. Um, it's a little different. It's a story. So there's things for us to learn in Acts, but we don't necessarily have to think we slavishly imitate everything that's in Acts. It's just food for thought. It's... Um, it shows us things that are normal, normative for churches. But, for example, we don't have to go find a guy named Stephen and stone him so that we can be just like the church in the first century in the book of Acts. We don't need to find a James and behead him. We don't need to have a great council in Jerusalem. But these are things that really happened. And the blessing for us is that our historian, Luke, took the time to write down everything that the Lord was doing through his people so we can get a sense of what normal church life looks like. And it's very human and very divine. And so keeping that in mind, I think it's just worth combing through here and saying, well, what is there for us to observe and think about 
and maybe imitate in the church at Antioch. So here's five things to observe. And we're going to comb through it this way first and then another way in a minute. Number one, um, the roots of this church, its origins, were because of persecution. It's very interesting to me. The very first word that, uh, verse that we read said that because Stephen was stoned to death, this great persecution arose of the Jewish authorities, especially against the followers of Jesus. And so people were running for their lives and were scattered because they were nervous. <laughs> you know, you might be imprisoned, you might have your property confiscated, you might be killed. And so as people were scattered, um, they still had Jesus in their heart. <laughs> so as they went, they proclaimed him. They preached Jesus as they were scattered. And I think one thing for us to learn in this is that um, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Jesus had commanded them to take the gospel outward to all people. And he's got a lot of different ways of getting people to get up and go. One of the ways he did it was through persecution, which is something no one would wish for. But in God's providence, it is useful for working out his program. So that's why as Christians, knowing God and his sovereignty and God and his love, we might complain an awful lot, but we don't criticize to the max. <laughs> we just say, all right, Lord, I see what you're doing and I'm not sure I like it. But I know that something good is about to happen, like we heard last night in song, right? We know that. So whether it seems to us to be excellent or seems to us to be tragic, we always know that God is on the throne. And so that's how this church was born, because as people were scattered, they preached in all kinds of places. And some of the people who were scattered came up to Antioch, which is to the north of Jerusalem quite a ways, and preached Jesus there. And a church was born because of their preaching. Those kinds of things happened in the first century church, but those kinds of things always are happening, and they're happening here in Chewila. How many of you chose to come to Chewila? You just sat down one day and looked at a map and said, of all the places in North America, I surely must live in Chewila or Addy or Colville or wherever you live. Now, for some of you, that may be true, but for others of you, you came here kicking and screaming your husband got an awesome job, and he came home one day and said, Honey, pack up the U-Haul. We have a new adventure. Well, where are we going? Shawila. And sometimes we don't know where we're headed <laughs> or what it's exactly going to be like, but God works. One of the things I realize about church life is that it's, it's so fluid, you guys. God is always moving his people around, and people come. And people go, right? Even pastors come, and then pastors retire, and they go. And truly, 20 years from now, whoever stands on this platform will be looking at a slightly different crowd. But of all people, we who are Bible people ought to know better that in all the comings and goings, God is doing amazing and powerful things, not just to give you a life that you need to have, but to make the gospel go where it needs to go. He can do that. He is more than able. So this church was born that way, and I just think it's worth noting that it's not, it's not the perfect scenario. It's not like the church in Jerusalem said, let's plant a church. Let's form a committee and do some demographic studies and send out some guys for reconnaissance and figure out where we could go. That's not how it started. I think that's not how most churches start. <laughs> And I so much prefer that churches are born out of a move of the Holy Spirit than merely out of the schemes of men, which 95% of the time don't turn out the way they planned. So that's interesting. The verse uh, here that says that the Christians were scattered, by the way, is very much like Acts 8.4, which is the comment that is made right after Stephen was stoned to death. And it tells you in 8.4 that the Christians were scattered after that time. And that because of that, they begin to preach the gospel in all of Judea. Imagine that. 
How did the gospel go from just the environs of Jerusalem out to that next concentric circle of Judea? It's because of this. And so we see the command of Jesus in Acts 1-8 to take the gospel out, 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 further and further, happening in the storyline of Acts. Number two, we know that the church in Antioch developed with diversity, which I know is kind of a buzzword these days, right? Like in our national conversation, in our politics, everybody's talking about identity politics and diversity and the need for diversity. And boy, we're just litigating that in an amazing, intense way all over again in our culture. We've always been diverse in America. And I remember reading history books and reading how a hundred years ago we weren't sure we wanted the Irish and the Italians, let alone the Presbyterians, (laughs) who've always had a foothold. Well, now those people are running the place. And so many more have joined us, right? Koreans and Vietnamese and people from every nation on the face of the earth have made America their home. That's a great thing. Well, in the life of the church, one of the things we notice in this story, especially in verse 20, is that when some of those people first preached the gospel in Antioch, they preached to Jews only. The people of God who already knew the story and installment one of the Old Testament. But we're told that other people came along, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who also preached to Greeks. And so what happened is this church developed along those two lines, Jews and Greeks, all in the same church family. It seems like a no-brainer for us because we all know our Bibles and Even the Apostle Paul said this, said it well in Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's a huge part of the New Testament story is that the gospel of Jesus and his his sacrificial death was not just for Jewish people. It was for all men. For God so loved the world (laughs) that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, this came true in this church, and so it became quite a center, a Gentile center, really, probably the first major Gentile-dominated church in the early years of the church. And uh, is that instructive for us today? Sure. Sure. You want this church, a true Bible church, a true gospel church, a true family and community church to be a church when any kind of rascal could come in these doors. And I note that for now they have to come in these doors. So as they come in, you all see them. And if you know them, you all have thoughts and and you think, oh, I'm so glad they are here. Or occasionally you might think, I can't believe that they are here. Right, But it's uber important for us to have the heart of God in this. Whoever he draws to himself, let's make sure our personal doors are open to them. Right, He is the savior of all peoples. And we know on that great and final days when we are all gathered around the throne of the Lamb of God and we sing holy, 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 there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who were there. So let us not be overly provincial. Certainly let us not be racist, right? Let us not be culturally small and socially, right, reserved to the point where we shut people out. But let's open up our hearts. Anyone can be saved. Who is the worst rascal in town? They probably have a name, and you know, and I don't. Let them come to the foot of the cross. Let us invite them to come to the foot of the cross. And we'll all join together in the song. Amen? I had a lady told me she was going to say amen in my sermon. I'm hearing it now. 
the third detail that I note is how this church was nourished, especially by Barnabas and Saul, who were named by name. And when this uh, nascent ministry was emerging there in Antioch because of the preaching of some nameless evangelists, we are told that the news of the growth of the church in Antioch reached the ears of the apostles down in Jerusalem. And so who did they send? They sent a guy with the gift of what? Encouragement. What is Barnabas' real name? Anybody remember? Well, that's what Barnabas means, but that's really his nickname. Yeah. Barnabas is the nickname that he was given, which means son of encouragement. And so they sent him, I can't remember his real name either. You can find it back in Acts 6 or 4 or 5. But isn't that funny? We remember the nickname. Because we are all known for a certain kind of a spiritual gift and demeanor, every one of us. And I've been called all kinds of names. And uh, I like the accurate ones. So they sent this son of encouragement to go see. And you can just imagine a conversation the apostles had in their, their strategic meeting and thought, all right, Jesus is being preached in Antioch, but, oh, man, how do you think it's being preached? <laughs> I mean, do you think there's any false doctrine swirling around there? I mean, is, that, is this good? Is it great? I hear there's a lot of Gentiles in this thing. I mean, you know where those guys are coming from philosophically. Greek, Gnostic. Right? Demonic, idolatrous, weird stuff. We need to find out if this is great. So they sent Barnabas, I'm sure, both to scope it out, right? And then to encourage what it was good. So he came and he found what he found. And uh, we are told that Barnabas encouraged them to continue on in the Lord with a resolute heart. What he found was good. A good solid start, a little unstructured, right? A little immature and just getting out of the gate, but he nourished it. But what we see is that he needed help. And who did he go to fetch to be his sidekick in ministering to this new church start? A rascal. Saul, who used to persecute the church, right? Saul, who held the cloaks in his own arms of the men who stoned Stephen. Man, I love this storyline. I mean, the weaving together of all of these subplots and individual people. And here is a church that was born because of people preaching because of the persecution of Stephen. And now who's coming up to help consolidate their ministry but the very guy who stood and observed and perhaps even orchestrated that whole persecution a rascal of rascals Saul of Tarsus but see he's a new man because he found the Lord in Acts chapter 9 and the Lord knocked him off his high horse there as he was going to persecute even more Christians and um He is a ministry powerhouse in his own right, and so Barnabas brought him. The other thing I like about the story is that I do recall that when Saul was first converted, a lot of people were skeptical about his conversion. Because we all know there are rascals who pretend to be saved and there are rascals who are saved, right? And Paul, when he was first converted, had a lot of skeptics. But there was one person who believed his story and encouraged him in his new faith. And who was that person? It was Barnabas. Go back and read the story in the earlier chapters. Barnabas was one of Saul's first sponsors and disciplers in the faith. So you see how this all plays together? All these relationships matter. And it's the same with you guys in our generation. It is amazing the stories that are represented even in this room and in my life certainly 
in our broader free church churches and ministry and district, how my life story intersects with Stan Salapka's life story, how it intersects with Rock Stewart's life story, our previous superintendent, how they all and I and you all intersected with Steve Watkins, our first superintendent back in the 80s. You all know the Christian world is kind of a small world. And they say there's six degrees of separation between you and everybody else on the face of the world. But in the Christian community, there are less than six degrees of separation. I'm quite sure of it. In our district, there's about two. (laughs) But those relationships, you guys, in the Lord, as we intentionally seek to do his work, can be leveraged in such powerful ways as we link arm in arm to get her done those most necessary things of ministry. So Paul went and brought, or I'm sorry, Barnabas went and brought Paul to Antioch and they both together ministered to that group. Number four, we cannot help but notice the significant numerical growth in this church. Many churches are planted and it's like flowers in my garden. Some flourish Others, no matter how much my wife waters those little flowers from Walmart, only some make it. (laughs) And so it is with churches. But this church, you guys, exploded. And in the text that we read, it says three different times something to the effect that significant people were coming to the Lord. In verse 21, We read this, the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. That is so important. Not just the large numbers, but why was the ministry flourishing? Because of Paul and Barnabas? Yes, but most importantly, because of the hand of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that's what I'm always looking for in church. I want to be in a church where we see the hand of the Lord. Because those are the only hands that matters, right? Unless the Lord builds a house, they who build it, what? Labor in vain. The Lord was building this house and considerable numbers were coming to the Lord. And then in verse 24, more language about growth. Those exact words, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. How? Well, because of those initial preachers, those nameless evangelists, and also because of the encouragement by Barnabas. And then again in verse 26, when Saul had come up to help Barnabas, it says they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. So those are very intentional phrases. This was not like a sad little church start. This thing was growing like a weed a great planted tree of God. And you you almost get the idea that they could hardly keep up with the work. And that's kind of the side of the curve I like to be on in church work. I like to see the Lord working in so many different ways that we're all just saying, man, I didn't even think more could happen, but more is happening. And like, who's going who's gonna to keep up with this work? Who's going to feed these babies? Right? Well, number five. We see the manifestation of spiritual maturity in a number of different ways in this church. And so having gone through the points I already have, it's like um, I mowed this lawn going one direction, picking out these details about how it started in persecution and Paul and Barnabas. But now I want to go to the other side of the lawn and we're going to mow it across the other way. How many of you do that? Like super geometrical, conscientious lawn mowers, man. I love mowing my lawn. I think it goes back to fourth grade when my dad commissioned me and said, this power mower, Lee, is all yours. Once a week, thou shalt mow the lawn. 
And man, we had three different parts to our lawn, front yard, middle yard, and backyard. And my dad did all the gardening and the fruit trees and everything. But he showed me how to edge the edges with those little half moon spade things and how to fix the mower when it broke down and replace the points and the starter spring. I love mowing lawns. (laughs) When I retire, my number one ambition, besides being a gospel guy, is to mow my lawn whenever I want. (laughs) Someone last night said, where's Dan? We can't find him. I said, he's probably mowing the lawn. I go there for breakfast this morning, and what do I see? Fresh lawn clippings. Man after my own heart, Dan. Well, anyway, so I just want to think back through this passage in a little different way, and we're going to mow the lawn the other way. And I just want to pick out the things that were elements of church growth here, which I think it really speaks to maybe what we should be about as a local church. Number one, so we note the evangelism that went on in the birth of the church. Like every Christian comes from somewhere, right? No man is an island in the Lord's work. So these people who didn't know the Lord, they found the Lord because other people came and shared with them. And there's no such thing as a truly independent church, no such thing as a truly independent Christian. All the preachers that we've heard and the teachers that we've had came from somewhere else, and we enjoy them here. All the songs that we sing, most of them, were written by someone else, somewhere else, right? And even this church here, which is so fabulous and, and joyful and healthy, you people mostly came from somewhere else. You're not all charter members from the days of the senior center. And that's true of this church. It came from somewhere else. So it was born in that evangelism and every new Christian work and Christian church has its start there, right? That initial surge, that initial proclamation. And the second phase of growth that we saw in the church of Antioch is what I'll call consolidation. And every church needs that. Like it's great to get started, but once you're started, it's like, oh wow, what do we actually have here? (laughs) And can this thing even sail? (laughs) Or is, is a shipwreck as imminent as our beginnings were, right? Like the Titanic? You don't be like that. Christened with champagne, sent out of Liverpool, maiden voyage, kablam! That's not awesome for church life. <laughs> we need consolidation. Preserve the gains, guard what is good, establish a little bit of structure and routine, and... Get ready for the next phase. And so that's what happened. And, of course, that consolidation phase is most represented by what Barnabas did. Came, saw, encouraged, and stayed with them. Pointed them in the ways they needed to go and kept that ministry on a healthy trajectory. And then the third phase of growth is just what I'll call discipleship. And as the church was growing, of course, he did go and get help, and he brought Saul to help him, his buddy. And it says that they stayed for a year. And I can very much imagine, as you can, what that year was all about. Because if you've read Paul's letters, which is half our New Testament, right? Romans all the way through Philemon. You get a real insight into the depth of heart and mind that, Saul of Tarsus possessed, a mighty minister of the Lord. And so for that year, as Paul and Barnabas stayed with the church and taught, you surely had a huge, giant step that was made in maturity in the believers there as they began to understand all that Jesus was and all about the progression of the kingdom of God and what the church mission is all about, how to live a holy life of discipline and fruitfulness Everything that you read in the epistles, they probably heard, right, in a rudimentary format, I'm sure, right there in Antioch. So the church benefited from Paul, but Paul surely also benefited from his experience with the church. One little secret you guys have to realize 
is when a pastor comes and a pastor's good and a pastor stays in a church and the church grows, you know who else grows? The pastor. The pastor grows. And um, so that whole church during that year surely had a lot of discipleship growth occurring that would have been evident structurally and organizationally in the whole, but also in the hearts of every believer. Huge progress. How many of you remember the first year you were saved and what it was like to read your Bible actually looking for little nuggets of truth to take to the bank and make your own? I still remember. It's one thing to be born again. But friends, it is so important to be discipled And every new Christian desperately needs, whether they know it or not, a little buddy to come up alongside him, a Barnabas, and say, all right, friend, you found Jesus and you think you know something, but you don't know the half of it. Like you have the treasure of heaven in your heart and you have no idea. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard all that the Lord has in store for those that are his, right? And that is absolutely most true for a new Christian. They're excited. They want to give their testimony. They're trying to sing all our quirky songs. They sit in the front row. They invite friends to church, actually, signing up on the clipboards. And they have no idea what they're doing it or what they're doing. But but they want to do it all. They need to be discipled. What is this rodeo all about, actually? What is your place in the world? What are your spiritual gifts? What does it mean to walk with Jesus and live a kingdom life, even now? We've got to learn that. Well, so they had that phase, obviously. And a year. They did this for a year. I thought, man, Pastor Dan's been here 11 years. I was in my churches for 15 years. I I, I wondered... Lee Kissman, did you accomplish in 15 years what the Apostle Paul did in one year in Antioch? I'm not so sure. I'm 60 years old now, and I'm still trying really hard to do a better job, right, to live out my place in God's world and and serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. So that needs to be going on in a healthy church. We need evangelism. We need consolidation. We need discipleship. But the fourth thing that you definitely see in the story is their witness. And you all saw that little phrase, I'm sure, as I read it. This was the very first place where Christians were called Christians. And in the earlier chapters, we see that they're called followers of the way, right? And things like that. Well, this Christian tag was both a term of derision as well as a badge of honor. All the people who didn't know the Messiah, Jewish and secular, could refer to Christians as Christians. And you have people like that in your life right now. To be called a Christian just depends on the context, whether that's a great thing or not. For us, it is a badge of honor. They were known as people of the Christ, Messiah people, people who believed that this Jesus of Nazareth was actually the coming king and promise of the Old Testament, that greater son of David, the anointed one, right, who came. That's us. We identify with him. And because I identify with him, his cross is my cross. His blood was shed for me. I am glad to be associated with Christ. But in your broader community, If the church makes a splash, there's always going to be two responses. There will be great opposition. We'll talk about those Christians. And then others who perhaps have more of an open heart and say, what is it with those Christians? Should I be a Christian? Perhaps I will look into it. I remember when I was first saved, I used to get up in the morning and go to church, and I would drive uh, 30 miles to meet my dad for breakfast, and we would go together. I lived in North Seattle, and my dad actually lived down in Kent, Washington, 
and we met in Renton. And Highlands Community Church in Renton, Washington is the church I got saved in. My dad and I both got saved in about 1975 because my little sister was tragically buried in a snow avalanche and died with her friend on a family snowshooting outing, a snowshoeing outing at Snoqualmie Pass at the Alpental Ski Area. We were there in January for a day of fun to practice building igloos because in a couple weeks we were going to take a three-day snowshoeing backpacking trip in the snow at White Pass. And we planned to big, build igloos then. So just for the Sunday afternoon, we thought we'd build igloos. Well, it was a terrible Sunday, you guys. It was 38 degrees and pouring down rain. And we're out in all this deep snow with these big saws making cubes to build our practice igloos. And my dad kept saying, this is fun, isn't it? Isn't this great? Dads always do that on family outings. You know, and the kids are like, oh, yeah, dad, it's super. (laughs) Couldn't have thought of a better day than to have soaking wet black leather gloves and my boots are filled with water and I am about to have hypothermia. So cold. It was miserable. But just after noon, acres of snow came down off the side of the mountain and rolled away my sister and her friend. Little girls, 10 and 12 years old. Instantly gone. Buried under so much snow, they labored in vain to find them all afternoon with long poles and the dogs. And we finally gave up and found them, not in January or February, but in August. When all that snow melted and nothing was left but a little glacial lake. And the girls were floating there. Worst thing for sure in our family story. But God. Like the persecution that arose become a Saul, God can bring beauty out of ashes. And because of that terrible tragedy, you guys, my dad got saved. Brilliant man, engineer for Boeing, big and strong and tough and manly, whimpering like a baby because of what had happened. And Pastor Wallace Wilson led Michael Kissman to the Lord in 1975. So my dad started saying, Lee, we're going to church now. And I thought, we are. What? I was in a rock band and had long hair and bell-bottom pants and platform shoes. Remember the 70s? And trying to be just as cool as can be. But I was not a Christian. I'd never heard about God or read a Bible in my life. And my dad said, let's go to church. So I gave you that diversion, not just because I don't have things to say, but see, there's a gospel growth story in every church that is only possible because of the gospel growth story in every person. And that's my story. So I would go to church, and uh, my little brother wouldn't go. And as I would get up to go out the door, he'd say, Have fun, choir boy. And I'm telling you, little brothers can be so nasty. I mean, I remember one time I was just eating my cereal at the table, and he looked at me, and I guess I was chomping my Cheerios too loud or something. And he looked at me, and he said, You are disgusting. Man, it hurt my heart. But what I... When I worked up the courage to actually start going to church on purpose with my dad, it hurt my feelings even more to have him call me choir boy. But I just thought to myself, I don't care what you say. Call me a Christian. I'm going to that place because I got things to learn. You'll be glad to know my little brother got saved later. Gloriously. Well, anyway, but they had a witness in this place. I mean, word got out. And the reason this is so important, you guys, is that the church of Antioch 
as the church got a reputation there and had influence, this was no small thing in the Mediterranean world. Do you know that the historians say that Antioch of Syria was the third most important city in the whole Roman Empire? Only Rome itself and Alexandria were greater in importance than Antioch. We don't know that automatically just reading the scriptures. But that's why this storyline is so important. Why, 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 why what happened here is in gospel growth is so strategic is to think that the gospel of Jesus got a foothold with Jews and Gentiles in a place like this from which point the gospel could sound out to the ends of the earth. And indeed it did. My last point before we dismiss is this. This church showed a final phase of growth. And that is, we don't get saved and come to church as an end in itself. But God plants trees that they may bear fruit. And this church was fruitful, not only in numerical growth and new believers, which is job one, yes? It's job one. But they showed maturity in their growth, number two, in benevolence. When they heard about this famine, what did they do? They had a yard sale, which is what we do best in America. Now, they raised funds, though, to send to the believers down in Judea who were suffering from the famine. And that is always a good sign in the life of a church. When we're doing well in our local church and we're singing good and praying good and doing our children's ministries, that's awesome. But when we begin to be generous and give to those who are suffering in the household of faith first, but even beyond the household of faith secondly, it's a good sign of health. And the church at Antioch was generous and sent those gifts by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. And you guys that are Bible scholars know this, that became a model for the Apostle Paul. And later in his missionary journeys, as he established churches all over the Roman Empire, one of the things he did is he collected money in those places to bring back to those suffering of the famine in Judea. And he saw it as a strategic way of tying together Jewish and Gentile believers. It's fantastic. So that whole subplot has its beginning right here. The last thing I want you to see is this. That church of Antioch was amazing, and it grew, and it was healthy. And they did consolidate their gains, and they discipled one another, and they grew, right, in numbers and in spirit. But probably the most important piece of fruit that came out of that church was missions. When Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, where were they sent from? Antioch. You read Acts 13, and it says the leadership of the Antioch church were seeking the Lord. They were fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord. And it says there in the text that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And it says, after they prayed and laid their hands upon them, they sent them out. And that was the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, the first of four. And he finally made it to Rome, you know, in chains, his fourth journey, at least. Where did all that come from? The church of Antioch. And out of those missionary journeys came a foothold for Christ all over the Mediterranean world, in Greece, in Turkey, in Rome. Spain, Paul wanted to go to, right? And we marvel at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We just think, Lord, what have you done through a man like that? I mean, 
as I said, half of our New Testament came from that man. And we benefit by it still. But I just want to close with this. Perhaps there would have been no missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul at all. And no book of Romans or Thessalonians or Philemon. Had there not been a God-driven ministry at the church of Antioch. The story of Paul is often told, and we marvel. But the story of Antioch always resides in the shadows. Who sent those missionaries? Antioch. Who paid the freight? Hired the ship got the provisions together and the bags of gold for those men to take with them to go plant those churches. Antioch, where did that teacher cut his teeth? Antioch, who prayed for them while they were on the field? Antioch, who heard their report when they came back from that first missionary journey? Antioch, when the early church was ready to split in half over legalism because of the Judaizers who insisted you should be circumcised to be a Christian, Who rose up and said something ought to be done about this and we need a church conversation? Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem for the Great Jerusalem Council. I leave that with you as an encouragement. Any local church, any local church, whether it's 12 people or 1,200 people, if we give our hearts to the Lord resolutely as they did, exercise our spiritual gifts as they did, Seek the Lord seriously in prayer as they did. Commission and send people as they did. Then we will see the Lord's word multiply a thousand fold. Our district is full of modest-sized churches, and people will often say to me, Lee, why do you waste your time with these churches of less than 100 people? And I always want to say, what are you smoking? It doesn't matter what size the church is. It matters whether they are on with Jesus or not. And I love to tell them, I said, you know, I was part of a little church once in Kennewick, Washington, just a little spit of a church that could hardly afford a building. Like you guys, we met in a community facility, the Grange Hall, for seven years. And it would probably still be there if we hadn't found a little chapel to buy for $90,000. And there have been people who have followed me in that church that have given them advice to shut the doors. You're too small. And I just think that is so blasphemous. Because out of our little church came eight missionaries, four pastors, a district superintendent. It's like we're talking about Nazareth. What good can come out of Kennewick, Washington? Wake up and smell the coffee. One or two or 12 people can do a lot if they hear the words of the Lord. You shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses here, there, and yonder. That's our legacy, a church like Antioch. That is a template for us in a lot of ways. But you guys, you have seen the progress of the work of the Lord in this place in marvelous ways. And now you're at a little bit of a pivot point. It's all good. Seek the Lord with all your heart. And you have no idea what can be in store when we all kneel together and say, Lord, have thine own way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a living God who promises to never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us even to the end of the age. And Lord, we've heard the gospel call and we have rejoiced in your kindness that you showed in the cross of our Savior. And we have that hope of the resurrection that is in that empty tomb. And we have the encouraging prospect of your soon return. But in the meantime, I do pray, Lord, that you'll give us all a heart for you. Help us to yield ourselves completely to you and not play games or compromise, to be passive or sedentary, 
But help us, Lord, to rise up and become even militant for the gospel's sake, to march forward as one man in this army. I pray that you'll give the grace to this church, Lord, to receive well all that is invested by their recent pastoral couple. And then, Lord, pivot from that point into new days of gospel growth. We pray in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.